Our scripture reading this week is from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, I'll bring one more disaster on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he'll let you go from here. In fact, when he lets you go, he'll eagerly chase you out of here. Moses said, This is what the Lord says. At midnight, I'll go throughout Egypt. Every oldest child in the land of Egypt will die, from the oldest child of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest child of the servant woman by the millstones, and all the first offspring of the animals. Then a terrible cry of agony will echo through the whole land of Egypt, unlike any heard before or that ever will be again. But as for the Israelites, not even a dog will growl at them, at the people or at their animals. By this you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all your officials will come down to me, bow to me, and say, Get out, you and all your followers. After that, I'll leave. Then Moses, furious, left Pharaoh. The Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh won't listen to you, so that I can perform even more amazing acts in the land of Egypt. And from Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month will be the first month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community on the tenth day of this month, they must take a lamb for each household, a lamb per house. If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share one with a neighbor nearby. You should divide the lamb in proportion to the number of people who will be eating it. Your lamb should be a flawless year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep close watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the houses in which they are eating. That same night they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. Don't let any of it remain until morning, and burn any of it left over in the morning. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. I'll impose judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live. Whenever I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike down the land of Egypt. At midnight the Lord struck down all the first offspring in the land of Egypt,
from the oldest child of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the oldest child of the prisoner in jail and all the first offspring of the animals. When Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the Egyptians got up that night, a terrible cry of agony rang out across Egypt because every house had someone in it who had died. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron that night and said, Get up! Get away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go! Worship the Lord as you said. Here ends the reading. So this reading about the first Passover, and actually a reading right after it about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the seven days after Passover, is the reading this week for our uh, narrative lectionary that we're doing. We're, we're continuing with the narrative lectionary, which is a, again, a lectionary is a selection of passages that you read um, throughout the year so that you get a good mix of things from different parts of the Bible. And the narrative lectionary is designed to give you an overview of the narrative, the whole story throughout the Bible. And up until about Thursday, I thought that this sermon was going to be about the Passover and why the Passover is important to, why it was important to the Israelites, why it's important to the Jewish community today, and why it's important to the Christian community. And I was going to talk about the similarities between the Passover, the first Passover, and the, the Jewish Passover, and uh, the uh, uh, crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, and, and things like that. And then, as many of you have heard by now, I discovered that President Donald Trump had come down with COVID-19. And I realized that my sermon is going to have to be very different <laughs> this week. Uh, this is why I don't pre-record sermons before Sunday, because you never know what's going to happen. What I've seen in my social media has been an interesting mix of, of responses. You know, I, I'm connected kind of to several different social circles and I get, I hope I get somewhat outside of my, my bubble, as you would say, um, with social media, but I've seen a mixture of responses. I've seen people uh, who are, um, I guess, uh, proponents of President Trump, fans of President Trump, who have asked for empathy and uh, for prayers of healing for the president and his family. I've seen folks who are excited, uh, happy that President Trump has become ill. Some of those people think that hopefully he will recover and this will give him a new outlook on the virus. Some of those people I believe really hope that he will not recover um, and that he will uh, that he'll die from the virus. I've seen people who say that he's not really sick, that he's just faking it. 
um, that he is uh, using this as a political ploy. Uh, I've seen people on both sides. I've seen say that. I've seen people who've said, oh, how strange it is that the Democrats aren't sick. Maybe they, maybe they did this to him. Our political environment now is so polarized. And sometimes it's hard as Christians to understand where we should be and what we should be saying and how we should be reacting to these events. And so I thought instead of what I was going to talk about, that I would talk about that. <laughs> because the Passover is related to this topic. And so I changed the title of my sermon this week to The First Passover, Does God Kill Our Enemies? So first, because again, our part of my ministry is to those who uh, are unchurched or, or who have uh, come from very, very different backgrounds. Uh, so I want to make sure I explain about the Passover and why it's important. The Passover takes place, the first Passover takes place in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch, um, which is the, the Jewish scriptures, the law, the law of Moses, as sometimes called. Pentateuch literally means five books. Um, so it's it's the, in the first five books, and it's the second one. The first one was Genesis, which talks about how the uh, Israelite uh, tribe came to be. And that's what we've been covering in previous sermons. And then Exodus begins with this story of Moses, who uh, is Israelite by birth, but is... Uh, raised in the pharaoh's family and when uh he's a young man he uh, sees the he, the israelite people being oppressed by the by the egyptians because by now the israelites are all slaves to the egyptians and um he kills an egyptian um slave master thinking that nobody saw him and when some of his fellow israelites who of course they don't know that he's an Israelite. They think he's an Egyptian. He was raised in Pharaoh's household, raised as one of Pharaoh's um, sons. That um, that uh, they they make fun of him or threaten him or say, "What are you going to do now? Are you going to kill us too?" And he he is afraid, and, he, and so he runs away. And actually, Moses Moses is a very important figure in the in the Hebrew Bible in the Jewish community. He's really seen as kind of the founder of Judaism in a way. He's the bringer of the law. He's, he's the one that, that gives the, you know, that brings the Ten Commandments from God. Um, he's the one that brings the people out of Egypt and back into uh, Canaan to the promised land. He's a very important person. And, and according to um, tradition, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So, Moses is a very important character, but one of the interesting things about Moses is that throughout uh, most, if not all, of his story, he is very much um, kind of a coward and kind of a kind of a uh, a whiner. You know, he he complains and he whines and he he uh, he's afraid, and, and God tells him to go back to Egypt. God appears to him in a, in a burning bush and, and tells him to go back to Egypt and to, to set his people, to set God's people free. 
And Moses is like, I can't do that. I'm not a good speaker. I could never do it, whatever. And God's like, well, then fine. Take your, your brother Aaron with you and do it. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess, you know. I mean, he's it, like really dragging his feet the whole time. But finally, at this point in the story, Moses just gets fed up with the Pharaoh. So he's gone to the Pharaoh several times and he said, please, you know, and he's, he's lying to the Pharaoh. He's not saying that, that they're going to leave. He's saying, we want to go out into the desert for, for three days and then t we want to go three days like like march out of the desert and then we're going to worship God with all of our families and all of our animals and everything and then we're going to come back but of course he doesn't plan to come back he plans to just leave and the Pharaoh doesn't want to let him go because this is their slave workforce that's building all of their tombs and things right so um, making bricks is what they say making bricks so God uh inflicts these various plagues the 10 plagues i'm not going to go into all those now uh, you should definitely read those chapters if you haven't it's very it's you know it's a cultural um, thing in the in the united states i think largely even in the kind of western world to know the 10 plagues but in any case um the very last of them is the 10th plague the plague of the the, the death of the firstborn sons and at this point moses is completely fed up and he goes to Pharaoh and he says, look, if you don't let us go, we're going, God is going to kill the firstborn of everybody, of you, of your people, of every person, of all the animals, everybody. And uh, he goes back and he tells the people to, uh, to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the door frame and over the front, over the top of the door to mark their houses. Now, um, archaeological digs and things have shown that this this uh, ritual of of sacrificing a lamb and and using the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the and the uh the door frame of the house is actually not unique to the israelites this, this was a this was a kind of a common um canaanite ritual uh, of this time of year i think but the point of it is that it because these are canaanite peoples who were in egypt this allows God to recognize which houses belong to the Israelites and which ones belong to the Egyptians. And so God passes over the Israelite houses and only kills the firstborn of the Egyptians. And this event, Passover, is extremely important to the Jewish faith and to the, the therefore, also to the Christian faith, um, to speak or you know, continuation of, of Judaism in, in many ways. But uh, it's even today it's it's um it's celebrated every year and i've i've been to passover seders i've been to to christian churches um that that celebrate passover seders i'm i'm not sure what i think about that i think that um as, you know passover seders it's very much a jewish holiday and I, um, but i guess it, you know, it, it can be done uh, uh with good intentions and it can be done properly uh, the church I served in in Austin didn't have one of their own, but they did invite a Jewish community to use their facility, and the Jewish community would often invite us to come to this to the seder, and that was that was really nice, and I've experienced some some very meaningful um, religious uh, uh, services because of that. It was really good. But this is what a seder looks like. It's all its various foods, and they all have an important uh, part of the story. But the point of the seder is to tell the story, to tell the story of the escape from Egypt. So that's what I want to talk about as far as the Passover goes. And the Passover is very important to Christianity, too. Um, the Last Supper of, of Jesus was a Passover Seder. It was the, 
the disciples were getting together to, to share the Passover meal. Um, and the time that Jesus uh, dies on the cross is the, about this is in the same time that they would have sacrificed uh, the Passover lamb, although it's the next day, but but still it's within that same time. So there there's um, there's significance there too. But I'm not going to go into that in any more detail today because the rest of my sermon is actually longer than I would already longer than I would like it to be. Um, so <laughs> I apologize for that in advance, I guess. But I think this is an important topic. So what I want to talk about mainly today is this idea called theodicy. Or another way to put it is why do bad things happen? So I think there are really three main um, questions of religion. Three, three questions that all religions seek to answer. Three reasons that people kind of seek out religion in the first place. And I would even include uh, kind of uh, scientific atheism or, or uh, um, secular humanism in this in this qualification. Because I think that they also answer these three questions um, for the people who uh, who hold to them. So the, I think the big three questions are: first of all, why are we here? Why does anything exist? Why why does life happen at all? Secondly, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is my life so difficult and unfair? Why do I do good things and still I suffer? And third, what happens to me and to my loved ones when I die or when they die? Where, where do we go after this? What, what, you know, what's beyond death, if anything? So those, I think, are the big three questions of religion. And, and what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on the second one. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And, um, you know, from these three questions, I think there's a related question that comes out, but, but that isn't, isn't really, it's really derived from these three, which is, how do I live a good life? How do I live a meaningful life? How do I get the most out of my life? Um, so let's talk now about theodicy. Theodicy comes from the Greek words theos and uh, dike, which means, uh, theos means God and dike means justice. So it translates to divine justice. It's often called also the problem of evil represents an attempt to defend God's omnipotence and goodness in the face of this problem of evil in the world. Um, this is one of the oldest questions in, the, in theology. You know, it, it seeks to, to answer how a benevolent, omnipotent, omnip, omniscient God, in other words, a loving, all-powerful, all-seeing God, can allow suffering and pain in God's creation. And specifically, I want to talk about how do we tackle this problem as Christian universalists. And so I think the first thing to talk about is that I want to look at the Bible. We, we need to look at the Bible and at our, at our religious texts and things to find the answer to this. And I think it's important to look at the Bible as narrative. The Bible as a whole reveals the story of God's actions in the world from the point of view kind of of, of the descendants of Jacob and those that were influenced by them. You know, we say a lot, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I mean, there are other religions that, that are also derived from Abraham, for example, um, Islam. But when you think of Christianity and Judaism, you're really thinking of the descendants of, of Jacob, of Israel. So 
the section of the Bible that we call the Old Testament is composed of a set of books that were written by the Jewish people um, up to about 100 years before the birth of Jesus. And these books um, also comprise what is now considered to be the Jewish canon, also known as the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. Um, although Christians place the books in a different order than, than, are, than they are in the Jewish uh, Bible. So to understand this, we, we need to look at the, the, the narrative, the whole story, the story of God through time. And so we need to start at the beginning. We need to start at kind of the earliest Israelite understandings of theodicy. So when we look at the earliest accounts in the Bible, we see that the Israelites understood God's punishment to be a communal thing. That is to say that God punished an entire nation based on the deeds of the nation as a whole, or based on the deeds of its, of its leader, sometimes. We see this in the Passover story that we just read, when God punishes the Egyptians for how they have treated the Israelites, and especially how the Pharaoh has treated the Israelites, the leader of the nation. And we see it again in the story of the Babylonian exile, when God punishes Israel for its misdeeds through the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Um, we also see it before then in the, in the destruction of Judea, um, uh, also by the Babylonians. So, so I mean, we see this this idea over and over. Um, we also see this, for example, in Sodom and Gomorrah, where Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed um, because of the the behavior of their um, of their inhabitants. Now, in modern times, I've seen some Christians, especially those from kind of fundamentalist. Uh, churches and, and I'm using fundamentalist here very specifically to talk about the, the fundamentalism movement or fundamental movement, um, which was a reaction against uh, liberal theology in the like in the 19th century, um, and the and the out what came out of that. And but these fundamentalist churches have a very legalistic, generally generally speaking, have a very legalistic, very um, very legalistic view of scripture and uh, are very in, interested in, in uh, scriptural inerrancy and things like that. And I've seen people from these traditions use this understanding of God's punishment to campaign against social issues that they consider to be immoral, uh, such as the legalization of same-sex marriage or abortion. The, the reasoning is that God will, pun will punish the entire nation for the sins um, of a part of the population or for the sins of its leaders in allowing things to happen. Uh, very famously, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, who were both prominent um, uh, fundamentalist evangelical um, uh, televangelists, uh, meaning they have broadcast TV, uh, uh, they have a TV show that they broadcast. They, they famously blamed the September 11th terrorist attacks on um, a list of things, and and I watched that video before when while I was working on this sermon, so I made sure I got the list right. But <laughs> but the list, the list that that um, Jerry Falwell lists in that video is removing God from schools, legalizing homosexuality, legalizing abortion, feminists, the people for the American way, and the American Civil Li uh, Liberties Union. He blames all those all of those people. Um, they, he says they all have a hand in bringing this about, and he saw it as God causing our enemies to attack us the same way the Babylon that, that in the Old Testament God causes the Babylonians to attack Israel but when, you know so when we when we look at the accounts I've mentioned in the, in the Old Testament and the warning we hear warnings and the prophets in the Old Testament warning about this kind of thing 
we can understand why people might think this. Like, I can understand, I understand the reasoning behind Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson saying those things. I understand where they're coming from. But I think that doing so is ignores the rest of the narrative. Doing, focusing on that kind of retribution ignores everything that comes later in the story. So now let's talk about the Babylonian exile. So after after Jerusalem is defeated by the Babylonians, they're exiled to, to, to Babylon and they're, and they're dispersed all over the place. And they're living in some really small communities. The temple is destroyed. I mean, it's it's a huge it's a huge deal, right? During this time, the the idea of communal punishment was um, started to change. The, the idea of communal punishment had been before had been kind of closely tied to how the early Israelites understood God's nature. To them, God was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God was the national God of Israel, and God resided in the temple in Jerusalem. But after the Israelites were taken into, cap- into captivity by the Babylonians, and they began to spread out everywhere, they, they, their understanding of God began to change. They, they came to understand that God was with them wherever they were, that they didn't need to go to the temple to find God, that God could be with them in exile. And so at the same time, their understanding of God's judgment and God's punishment began to change as well. Now, one example of this is Psalm 35, um, which was probably written around the 6th century BC uh, during the Babylonian exile. And it goes like this. Lord, argue with those who argue with me. Fight with those who fight against me. Grab a shield and armor, stand up and help me. Use your spear and axe against those who are out to get me. Say to me, I am your salvation. Let those who want me dead be humiliated and put to shame. Let those who intend to hurt me be thoroughly frustrated and disgraced. Let them be like dust on the wind, and let the Lord's messenger be the one who does the blowing. Let their path be dark and slippery, and let the Lord's messenger be the one who does the chasing. Because they hid their net for me, for no reason, they dug a pit for me, for no reason. Let disaster come to them when they don't suspect it. Let the net they hid catch them instead. Let them fall into it, to their disaster. By the time the Jewish people began to return from exile in the 5th century BC, their idea of God's punishment had changed. It had changed from a communal punishment to more individual punishment. They believed that God would bring fortune to the just and misfortune to the unjust, and not in the afterlife, but in this life, because this time there was still really not an understanding of the afterlife. This time is often called Second Temple Judaism because the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem by the people who returned from the exile. And Psalm 94, which was probably written around the 3rd century BC, about 300 years later than Psalm 35, gives us an example of the changing understanding of justice and retribution. This is an excerpt from it, uh, but you should definitely read the whole thing. Lord, avenging God, avenging God, show yourself. Rise up, 
judge of the earth, pay back the arrogant exactly what they deserve. How long will the wicked, O oh Lord, how long will the wicked win? They spew arrogant words. All the evildoers are bragging. They crush your own people, Lord. They abuse your very own possession. They kill widows and immigrants. They murder orphans. Saying all the while, the Lord can't see it. Jacob's God doesn't know what's going on. Can a wicked ruler be your ally, one who wreaks havoc by means of the law? The wicked gang up against the lives of the righteous. They condemn innocent blood. But the Lord is my fortress. My God is my rock of refuge. He will repay them for their wickedness, completely destroy them because of their evil. Yes, the Lord our God will completely destroy them. By the time of Jesus' birth, the Jewish people had also changed their understanding more. They had come to understand that maybe not all hardships and evil done to them were due to their own actions. The book of Job is perhaps the best example of this, written sometime in the first century or second century BC. In it, God and Satan have an argument over whether or not Job, a man of exemplary faith, can be made to despise God if God takes away all of the good things in Job's life. God does this, first by killing all of Job's family, and then, when Satan says that's not quite enough, by making Job very ill on the brink of death. Job bemoans the fact that he doesn't deserve this cruel fate, he weeps and he mourns, but he never speaks out against God. He never says that God is wicked or that God is evil. Job shows us that sometimes bad things happen to good people through no fault of their own. I, didn't, I did not include the reading of Job in this because the sermon was already very long and um, Job is very long, <laughs> but uh, you should definitely read it, at least to the first, um, you know, the first bit of it. Um, it's, it's quite a thing. So this brings us to the teachings of Jesus. As Christians, we must also look to the New Testament. You know, the, the Jewish community really has their their scriptures, their canon to look to that we've talked about. And in addition to what we have in the Christian faith, uh, the Jewish faith has additional books that have been written since the birth of Jesus that we don't include. Um, so it's not a closed canon. There's, there's additional things. But uh, the point is that as Christians, we need to look to the, the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus to continue the story, to continue the story of God's love and of God's um, covenant with us and of God's relationship with us over time. So we need to look at that story to see 
how Jesus understood God's justice and God's punishment, and how Jesus asked us to behave as, as children of God and as followers of Jesus. So Jesus' teachings really continued this line of thinking that had, that had led to the book of Job, but they were even more radical. And they didn't come from nowhere. There, there were other prophets, there were other teachers, other rabbis at this time who were teaching similar things. You know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This idea of love your neighbor as you would love yourself was not unique to Jesus. There were other teachers in this time who were teaching the same thing. But Jesus brought a more perfected, um, a more perfected message, brought a deeper message, brought through his own sacrifice and example, and through his resurrection showed us that God will defeat the forces of evil in the end. So what did what did Jesus say? Well, where, where the prophets and leaders of the past had prayed for divine retribution on their enemies, Jesus called instead for his followers to pray for their well-being and for God to change their hearts. For example, in Matthew, and this, this comes... Um, from uh, the, the teaching of the multitude, <laughs> if you will. Um, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask, and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you, so that you will be acting as children of your father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. And then in John, we have a story about Jesus that ties into this theme. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. In doing this, Jesus puts to rest the idea that one's sins or those of one's ancestors lead to hardship in our own life. Instead, Jesus said that those who sinned against their fellow human beings and turned away from God would be punished not in this life, but in the next. 
Consider, for example, this reading from Matthew. Jesus says, Either consider the tree good, and its fruits good, or consider the tree rotten, and its fruits rotten. The tree is known by its fruit. Children of snakes, how can you speak good things while you are evil? What fills the heart comes out of the mouth. Good people bring out good things from their good treasure, but evil people bring out evil things from their evil treasure. I tell you that people will have to answer on judgment day for every useless word they speak. By your words, you will be either judged innocent or condemned as guilty. Jesus also tells us to love our neighbors and to leave judgment to God. Take this reading from Luke, a continuation of the, uh, the teaching of the multitudes that we saw in Matthew. Don't judge, says Jesus, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion packed down, firmly shaken and overflowing, will fall into your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. So how do we take all of this information and use it to inform us in our daily lives? Does God kill our enemies? Should we wish death on those who we disagree with? It seems to me that every day on Facebook or YouTube, I see a fellow Christian wishing ill will on those who they disagree with. Most often, they're Christians from fundamentalist churches, and they're praying to God for the, the destruction of liberals or feminists, activists, the queer community, those who believe in women's right to choose, and anyone else whom they disagree with. But not always. I remember when Obama was president, there were many calls by fundamentalist pastors to pray Psalm 109. I haven't included the text in the presentation, but let me read it for you, a, a portion of it anyway, the, the portion that was most often quoted. Let his days be few. Let someone else assume his position. Let his children become orphans. Let his wife turn into a widow. Let his children wander aimlessly, begging, driven out of their ruined homes. Let a creditor seize everything he owns. Let strangers plunder his wealth. Let no one extend faithful love to him. Let no one have mercy on his orphans. Let his descendants be eliminated. Let their names be wiped out in just one generation. Surely this goes against what we see when we look at the biblical narrative as a whole. And most importantly, when we look at the teachings of Jesus. As Christians, we, we must not take every verse in the Bible at face value without understanding it as a piece of a much larger narrative. The psalm in this particular case is a response to oppression. And when it was quoted by 
pastors, fundamentalist pastors usually, usually they would only quote the first, the first um, verse. Let his days be few, let someone else assume his position. And that by itself is not so bad. I mean, that might just be saying, I hope that, you know, he doesn't win re-election, right? May his days be few. May let someone else assume his position. That's, that's pretty harmless. But you have to take it in context. The next line is, let his children become orphans. Let his wife turn into a widow. This is wishing death upon the person. And then, let his children wander aimlessly, begging, driven out of their homes. Let a creditor seize everything he owns. Let strangers plunder his wealth. Let no one extend faithful love to him. Let no one have mercy on his orphans. Let his descendants be eliminated. Let their names be wiped out just one generation. This psalm, in particular, is a response to oppression. It's, it's a response to someone who is desperate, someone who has reached out in love to his enemies and has received hatred in return. And there's a very real need for prayers of deliverance from suffering and oppression. And the narrative that we find in the Bible teaches us that we should call out to God in such moments of depression, of desperation, of oppression and suffering. But we must also humble ourselves and be honest about our own situations. Christians, as a religious group, are not being oppressed by the government of the United States of America. Religious pluralism and the separation of church and state are not the same thing as oppression. In Japan, only 1% of the population is Christian, really less than that. But the Christians are not being oppressed. We are free to worship as we please, just as Christians are in the United States. That's why there are so few missions to Japan. <laughs> But there are many places in the world that this is not true. And by claiming oppression when there is none, we make light of the very real situation of Christians in other places. We make light of the situation where the poor are being oppressed. We make light of the situation where genocide is occurring. We make light of situations where people are fleeing their homes because we say, well, we can't pray in school, and yet we can pray in school. There's nothing illegal with praying in school. The teacher can't lead the class in a prayer, but there's no reason that a child can't pray to themselves. And Jesus tells us not to pray in public anyway, but to pray in our closets where others won't hear us. Why do we feel oppressed? Now that President Trump has come down with COVID-19, many of these same people have asked those they disagree with, those who disagree with President Trump, to have empty, have empathy and compassion for them, for President Trump. Empathy and compassion despite those same people showing no compassion, showing no empathy for those whom they have disagreed with in the past. As Christians, we are called to humble ourselves and to take the high road in such situations. Jesus tells us to pray for those who hate us. But at the same time, Jesus tells us not to judge others. Jesus' commandments, especially in that section, 
are very difficult to live up to. And if you are not able to love to those commandments, if you find yourself unable to pray for the one that hurts you and oppresses you, that is okay. There is nothing wrong with that. And we need to not judge those people who are being oppressed, those people who are happy for whatever reason that this has happened. We need to not tell them that they're horrible people and they lack empathy. If someone lives in an abusive relationship and they finally escape from their abusive partner and flee and later their abusive partner gets sick and dies and they feel happy for that, that is okay. They have been in an incredible situation that I cannot possibly fathom. And it's not my role to judge them for that. We are called to pray for all those who are suffering, including President Trump and his family. And we should offer all those who suffer compassion, including those who have been hurt by our government, who find some justice in what has happened. God does not kill our enemies for us. God causes the sun to shine on both the good and the evil, the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. But sometimes our own sins catch up with us and come back to haunt us. And when that happens, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Amen.